I look at these proposals and say, do they hurt my Uncle Dick in the deer stand? Um, Wait, what? What did she say? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Must be a Minnesota thing. I got the feeling that something right. That's got to be it. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle. Here I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, way out in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, up in Palinville, New York on WLPP, Grand Rapids, WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Out in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul, home of her Uncle Dick, on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another episode of special coverage following Tuesday night's um, SmackDown debate in Charleston, South Carolina. But we'll start with the morning after, after the 10th Democratic presidential debate in Charleston, ahead of... South Carolina's crucial first in the South primary election this Saturday, in which, by the way, the entire state will be voting on brand new 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting system. So whatever the results are, those results will be whether they actually accurately reflect the intent of the electorate or not. But on the morning after the uh, debate last night, former President Joe Biden received a much needed vote of approval from influential South Carolina Democrat and U.S. House Majority Whip Congressman Jim Clyburn, whose coveted endorsement in the state is expected to carry much weight, particularly among African-American voters. As we go to air, Joe Biden, whose polling numbers have been slipping nationally uh, following disappointing performances in the first three early states, uh, he still maintains about a 10-point lead in the real, real clear politics polling average in South Carolina, ahead of uh, current party frontrunner nationwide Bernie Sanders, 
That in a state that many regard as a must win for the former Veep after Sanders has swept into the delegate lead and national polling lead following his commanding landslide victory at the Nevada caucuses last weekend. But it is not only South Carolina now at stake over the upcoming week. Just three days after South Carolina on Saturday will be March 3rd, Super Tuesday, when voters in some 14 states will have their say, or at least try to, including the huge delegate-heavy states of California and Texas, but also Alabama, Arkansas, Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, where Elizabeth Warren better win, Minnesota, where Amy Klobuchar better win, North Carolina, where they, like California and Texas this year, will force many voters in their most populous districts to vote on new 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. Also, they'll be voting in Oklahoma and in Tennessee, which still uses old unverifiable touchscreen voting systems in its largest counties and also in Utah, Vermont and Virginia. After next Tuesday, depending on how it goes, the race for the Democratic nomination could be all but over, given the number of delegates at stake on Tuesday or... It might not. It could turn into even more of an ugly and or spirited contest, depending on how you look at it, between a number of the remaining, quote, contestants, as billionaire contestant Michael Bloomberg described them on the debate stage on Tuesday night in Charleston, where seven candidates, that's one more than last week's debate in Nevada. Yes, we're moving in the wrong direction. Uh, Seven candidates took the stage, including Sanders, Biden, Warren, Klobuchar, Buttigieg, Steyer and Bloomberg, as moderated very poorly, in my opinion, by CBS News's Nora O'Donnell and Gail King, with additional questions from CBS's Bill Whitaker, Major Garrett and Margaret Brennan. As NBC's Sahil Kapoor helpfully summed up his main takeaway from the latest Democratic Circular smackdown on Tuesday night at Charleston's Gilliard Center. Democrats threw everything they had at Bernie Sanders. And if the 10th debate here didn't slow his march to the nomination, it's not clear anything will. Mike Bloomberg told him Russia wants him to be the nominee so he can lose to President Donald Trump. Elizabeth Warren said she'd be a better president than Bernie Sanders and took him to task for supporting the Senate filibuster. Joe Biden went after him for voting against gun safety measures and floating a potential primary challenge against Barack Obama back in 2012. Pete Buttigieg charged that House Democrats are fleeing Sanders' agenda. And Amy Klobuchar argued she was the most anti-Sanders candidate on the stage. At one point, Sanders offered a knowing grin and quipped, quote, I'm hearing my name mentioned a little bit tonight. I wonder why. Here's just a little bit of what Tuesday night's two-hour face-off in Charleston sounded like, in case you missed it or might like to relive much of the fun. Of the last 50 polls that have been done nationally, I beat Trump 47 of those 50 times. What every study out there, conservative or progressive, says Medicare for all will save money. We are looking at a party that has decided that we're either going to support someone who's a a democratic socialist or somebody who has a long history of being a Republican. 
progressive ideas are popular ideas, even if there are a lot of people on this stage who don't want to say so. It adds up to four more years of Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House, and the inability to get the Senate into Democratic hands. If we spend the next four months tearing our party apart, we're going to watch Donald Trump spend the next four years tearing our country apart. Because let's talk about what it adds up to. Let's talk about math math Okay, so here's the math. No, here's the math. Can I respond to the Doing nothing is what will happen. Senator Sanders, you are allowed to quick forward and we would like to allow you to get Can anybody in this room imagine moderate Republicans going over and voting for him? And you have to do that or you can't win. Imagine spending the better part of 2020 with Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump. Think about what that will be like for this country. You talk about what we're talking about with Bernie. Bernie, in fact, hasn't passed much of anything. The fact of the matter is... But I get to answer I get to answer that. Look, look, the fact is, here's the deal. I'm not out of time. You spoke over time, and I'm going to talk. It matters. It matters if you can actually get things done. It is not just who talks the best, who actually gets things done. Who funded Lindsey Graham's campaign for re-election last time? It was Mayor Bloomberg. And that's not the only right-wing senator that Mayor Bloomberg has funded. In 2016... He dumped $12 million into the Pennsylvania Senate race to help reelect an anti-choice right-wing Republican senator. And I just want to say, the woman challenger was terrific. She lost by a single point. In 2012, he scooped in to try to defend another Republican senator against a woman challenger. That was me. It didn't work, but he tried hard. I think that uh, Donald Trump thinks it would be better if he's president. I do not think so. Vladimir Putin thinks that Donald Trump is, should be president of the United States. And that's why Russia is helping you get oh, elected Mr. so you'll Bloomberg. lose to him. And let me tell Mr. Putin, who interfered in the 2016 election, try to bring Americans against Americans. Hey, Mr. Putin, if I'm president of the United States, Trust me, you're not going to interfere in any more American elections. My entire career has been wrapped up in dealing with civil rights and civil liberties. I don't expect anything. I plan to earn the vote. I hear, I'm here to ask. I'm here to earn it. I know that if I were black, my success would have been a lot harder to achieve. And I know a lot of black people that if they were white, it would have been a lot easier for them. That's just a fact, and we've got to do something about it than rather just demagogue about it. I have a housing plan, and what it has in it specifically is a piece to deal with the effects of redlining. We can no longer pretend that everything is race neutral. We have got to address race consciously what's happening in this country. The time has come for us to stop acting like the presidency is the only office that matters. Not only is this a way to get Donald Trump reelected, we got a house to worry about. We got a Senate to worry about. So there you go. That was just some of it. Let's call it the uh, lively Democratic presidential debate on Tuesday night in South Carolina. All two hours or so summarized in about three or four minutes there. You're welcome. (laughs) Joining us now for our post-debate special coverage analysis is, of course, as always, our delightful and 
Uh, no less grumpy than usual, <laughs> producer Desi Doyen. Yeah, uh, that was a slugfest. Is it getting harder or easier to pull clips from these debates as they seem to be getting more out of control with each one? Actually, it's a little harder because they're a little less coherent and uh, and specific in what in their responses. It's yeah. more just generic generic fighting back at each other. Yeah, you're right, and it's less about policy and more about uh, who can throw the biggest roundhouses, I guess. Yep. We are also honored to be joined once again by two. Bradcast post-debate special coverage veterans. We'll start uh, with David Ferris. He is a contributor at The Week, associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and author of the book, It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. Well, David Ferris, are the Democratic uh, candidates fighting dirty enough for you yet? I think they took it just a little bit beyond what I had in mind. Listening to those clips just stressed me out again. Oh, my God. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Sorry. Yeah. Uh, No, it's okay. It's It's what happened. We got to let people know what happened. And, of course, our uh, beloved champion of post-debate sense-making, no pressure, Heather. Uh, Heather Digby Parton is known by uh, many as simply Digby. She's the award-winning proprietor of the long-running Hullabaloo blog and a regular contributor at Salon.com. Heather, there has been a lot of hand-wringing by Democrats in recent days after the chaotic shout-fest debate last week in Nevada and then Sanders' landslide win on Saturday uh, and another contentious debate last night. Are you feeling any better or worse about Democratic prospects in November as uh, as this race goes on, Heather? Oh, it hasn't changed it, my opinion in the least. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, look, it's, you know, this is a campaign and they are fighting amongst themselves, which is what these primaries are all about. And, you know, I just, I don't, I don't get into the panic thing. I think it's fine. I mean, I have critiques of the debate, mm-hmm. for sure. Good. But not that, you know, oh, they're being too, you know, feisty. Uh, you know, I think that's okay. There you I go. really do. I think, right. I mean, look at who we have as president. So, you know, obviously America is not, you know, they don't want to, I don't know that, that, that America is yearning <laughs> to have a seminar on, you know, or another seminar on the uh, the uh, health care funding mechanisms mm-hmm. uh, of the various plans. I mean, I just, I, I think maybe... It, the the fight it may actually be good. You're uh, saying uh, Americans are not in it for the niceties these days, perhaps. Well, I think they want to see somebody who can uh, fight dirty, mm-hmm. as, uh, as David says, you, you know. So they're <laughs> looking to to see him mix it up, and I think that's I think that's probably okay. And you know, the field is going to narrow before too long. They can't all hang on. That's forever, what so. you say. We'll <laughs> see. Well, actually, we're gonna we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but David, uh, particularly since the Sanders landslide, and I think that's fair to call. I think he had uh, twice as many votes as. Uh, his nearest competitor, the second place uh, winner there, which I think was Joe Biden. Uh, but since then, uh, in Nevada on Saturday, uh, no small number of sort of longtime establishment Democrats and uh, some of their supporters in the corporate media have sort of been freaking out about the possibility of a Sanders nomination. Um, where are they wrong and or right to freak out as you see it, David? Um, well, I mean, I think that the freakout goes well beyond um, any any sort of data that we have um, about how Sanders would perform in the general election. You know, um, that's not to say that there's nothing to worry about if Sanders does get nominated, but we, we have a wealth of polling data going back four years now 
of, of head-to-head polls between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and he performs pretty well. You know, um, he does not generally perform quite as well as Joe Biden, although that's not true in every poll. Um, but he's certainly not um, somebody who's polling you would look at and be like, oh my God, we're doomed. You know, um, so in in that sense, I think that the I think that many people in the media are kind of missing something about the kind of person that supports Bernie Sanders. Um, I think that they are overestimating the effect that ideology and in particular positions have on on individual vote choices, um, and uh, and they don't like them. You know, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty clear. Um, is, so, is the freakout more? That's, that's, is, is the freakout more about his policies than his chances of winning, as you see it? Um, I mean, I think it's a, it's a little bit driven by policy, right? I mean, Sanders does have a couple of policies that seem to go a little bit beyond what you might think of as the American consensus. But I, I think that it's more just sort of anecdotal reasoning than fighting the last, not even the last war, like fighting wars from 40 years ago. Mm. But in the sense that everybody, you know, I think over the age of, of 50 or so remembers, remembers it's McGovern, right? Everybody's afraid of the McGovern scenario mm. um, or a Mondale scenario. And I just don't think that our politics are set up for that kind of landslide anymore. Um, certainly, I think that Sanders brings some weakness to a couple of places that I think that Democrats might have hoped to expand the map, but he brings some other strengths to places that we also need. Mm. Um, and so it's a, it's a little bit of a give or take, you know, um, and I, I think that rather than panicking, <laughs> um, people in the Democratic Party ought to be sort of starting to do some math about, you know, hey, if Sanders is the nominee, how do we get to do 70? You know, yeah. um, wh- wh- how can we work with him, right? Which, which um, is one of the reasons that I, I, I get so uh, disturbed, frankly, not panicked, uh, but disturbed when I hear uh, Pete Buttigieg, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but Pete, you know, Buttigieg going, uh, the way he attacked him after Nevada, uh, attacked Bernie Sanders, seems like it's just made for a GOP commercial, a Donald Trump GOP commercial a few months from now. It seems ill-considered to me, some of these attacks that we're seeing on uh, the man who could end up being the standard bearer here. But let's, uh, as usual, I want to start with sort of the big picture uh, from the debate itself before we drill down to some specifics, if we can actually find any from that debate, frankly. Um, in, In 2016, the Sanders campaign complained Uh, that there were not enough debates Uh, after the Clinton camp and the DNC wanted fewer debates rather than more. Well, Tuesday night, Heather, was the 10th debate so far this cycle. So my first real question here to you, too many debates in 2020? I think so. I mean, I think I think what I think it's in fact, I would I think I would prefer some fewer debates in the beginning and maybe Mm -hmm. a few more. Uh, you know, or the the same number um, later in the game, mm-hmm. um, because I, you know, look, I, I mean, I, the, you have to admit, I mean, the last debate in Nevada got twenty million people tuned into that, mm-hmm. but we know why. It was because it was the first debate for Mike Bloomberg, and it mm-hmm. sunk his campaign. Right. Uh, so they are maybe, important. Maybe we'll see. Well, you we'll know, see. Yeah. I I have believed from the very beginning that the minute people got a good look at Mike Bloomberg, his money was not going to be able to buy the election, no mm-hmm. matter how much he spent. Yeah, he's a remar- he, he's a remarkably bad debater. I think he's a remarkably unpleasant person. That too. And <laughs> you know, I don't think people are going to, you know, on a national level, are going to vote for that. I just don't. And you know, I think that one thing that New Yorkers sort of forget is that you know the rest of us who live out here in you know the hinterlands of places like Los Angeles and Chicago, uh, we don't, you know, we're not that 
familiar with Bloomberg, you know, as a personality. I mean, you, you know, those of us who follow politics really closely probably had an idea, but for the most part, I don't think people did. So the minute they saw him and saw what, you know, an arrogant, um, you know, careful, completely... Careful, careful, yeah, yes. Sorry, I'm, I'm uh, an arrogant person. There yes. you go. <laughs> um, he, uh, I think that they, that they, you know, that, and I knew that was going to happen because I am familiar with Bloomberg, and I knew that he was just not the kind of guy who was going to come out and be, and he was worse than even I expected. So that debate was, you know, highly, you know, mm-hmm. it had it got great ratings and a lot of people watched it. But for the most part, I think these debates, I mean, and one of the things that drives me nuts, and I think I mentioned this last time, actually, was, you know, this endless discussion of health care financing mechanisms. Oh, I'm God, going yes. to shoot myself in the head if I have <laughs> to hear another round of that. I can't stand it. And, by the way, you know, at the debate last night, uh-huh. they made a huge mistake, every candidate, every moderator, all of them, by talking about health care financing mechanisms again instead of talking about the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Why didn't they tie that in to what's going on? Public health and the funding of all of that. I mean, this was, an, this was a perfect moment for the Democrats to say, you know, look, we believe in government. Government is the only institution that can actually coordinate mm-hmm. something like a massive public health emergency. And here we have this dolt in the White House who's defunded, you know, the, uh, the public health mechanisms that could help us get through this. And yet, you know, instead it's like they're on this merry-go-round of just having the same argument over and over again. Well, so to that extent, I think there are too many debates because I don't want to hear it anymore. Yeah, and uh, I mean, uh, frankly, I thought far and away, uh, well, I thought, the, as I said, the moderators I thought were terrible. The far and away, the best questions actually came from uh, two Twitter questions, I thought. One was on affordable housing and education equity for minimum wage workers. Another was on the ongoing civil war in Idlib, Syria. Um, and you know, we have to admire Pete Buttigieg, though he pivoted from the civil war in Idlib yeah. to healthcare financing. Yes, <laughs> yeah, he did. Yes, he I did. couldn't believe it. I went, "You've got to be." I mean, give him credit where yeah. credit is due. You well, brought it right no. back to where he wanted to be. Well, there was uh, just a whole bunch of stuff that did not come up yet again. Um, you pointed uh, Digby on on Twitter. I noticed last night: military budget, climate change, Donald. Trump, I can't use the word you included there, Um, Russian interference, corruption of the rule of law and the intelligence community. Uh, David Ferris, last week after the Nevada debate, uh, we had David Bender on the show as a guest. He had an odd and or interesting and or frustrating take on a number of aspects of the uh, Nevada debate, debate. But one point that he made has sort of stuck in my head. You know, he said that the winner was Donald Trump because few, if anybody, talked about the specific dangers that Donald Trump is posing right now to this country. Um, was Bender right about that? And and uh, you know, again, did we see this? Why why aren't questions about Donald Trump's criminal reign either raised by any of the moderate uh, moderators? Uh, really in any of these 10 debates so far, or even raised very often by the candidates themselves? Well, you know, this debate was a mess. Um, and it was a mess because the moderators let it become a mess. And I've, I've, I've been saying this since June, um, but, the, but the DNC needs to seize control of the debate process yep. from the networks um, and put it inside the party. Um, if you want to have 12 debates, they should be about different things. 
I'm so tired of, of hearing them argue about, about gun control and about, about healthcare financing mechanisms. Uh, it's just, it's like the same thing over and over again. It's absurd. The audience is bored. They have nothing new to say to each other. They're like an old married couple on the, on the verge of divorce. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, it's, and, I mean, even beyond that, the questions were stupid. I mean, like, you know, foreign policy gets boiled down to like a raise your hand, yes, no question about whether to keep troops in the Middle East. Um, there's nothing about, you know, universal daycare, the struggles of families. I mean, there's, there's so many things that get left out of these debates. Um, and I, but, and I but think Donald it, it really Trump, comes down to... But, no, go yeah. ahead. Go, go, comes down to what? It, it comes down to the, to the fact that the Democrats don't don't seem to, to be playing any role in like producing the questions that the moderators mm. ask. Right? It's, it's like you've, you've subcontracted it out. And yeah, of course, like a, a you know a ten or fifteen minute exchange about the about the danger that, that President Trump poses to this country could be instructive. I mean, I think you can't film ninety minutes with that because the candidates aren't really going to disagree um, and, and produce any particularly interesting television um you know it's it's sort of like a let's do a pass-through let's highlight some of the things that president trump is doing right and that's like the party really needs to think about these debates um as an advertisement for the party right like this is a showcase of, of your political talent your best national political talent um and if, you, if you're not going to hand them five minutes to to go after the president with a, with a sort of clean shot in a national audience mm-hmm. um i i just don't understand what the point of this is uh, and, yeah I, uh, I, that, that's what i don't understand either i don't understand i mean uh, frankly all of these issues that they discuss are important in various ways uh, the american people feel you know more strongly about some than others but it seems to me the unavoidable issue is frankly Donald Trump as the number one issue in in this race, uh, and I don't enjoy that, but that seems to be a fact. Heather, uh, does it feel like uh, Trump has somehow managed to make it off limits for moderators to ask questions about him? I was you know thinking about this. Is it because that you know the moderators would be seen as taking sides or something like that if they did? Uh, ask direct questions about the very clear corruption of this president? Well, I hadn't actually thought of that, but I suppose it's, you know, that's possible. But I, 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 I just think that what's happened is, and this is partially the Democrats and the candidates' fault as well, they've decided somehow that the criticism of Trump is baked in. Uh, everybody that's going to vote for them, particularly in a primary, already hates Donald Trump. So they don't really need to do that, but I think they're wrong in that, because I think that that what they, to me, it's not so much that people don't know that Trump is a monster and a barbarian, it's that what they want to see from these candidates is is how they're going to beat Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. and one of the ways that they could do that, it seems to me in the debates, is to somehow fold in that criticism of Donald Trump with their answers on their own policies mm-hmm. when you're talking about these things. How, you know, bring up the fact that, you know, Trump is a, is a misery. And if they've got to talk about gun control, at least mention the fact that he's practically, you know, in bed with the NRA and has basically told them that they, you know, that they, they have full reign on, on his White House. Or if they're talking about the health care funding mechanisms, mm-hmm. at least talk about the fact that Donald Trump's administration is sponsoring a, uh, you know, is is involved in a lawsuit mm-hmm. that would completely, you know, um, obliterate Obamacare. I mean, there's ways of doing this where you could you can make your own statement, but it just seems like there's, you know, the, and we hear this from the Congress as well. You know, Nancy Pelosi and the rest of them go, well, you know, we really want to pivot to health care now. That's our issue, as if 
they seem to be totally convinced that 2018, the 2018 victory in the House was driven solely on the backs of a bunch of people talking about health care. yeah. And that was a number one issue. And if people talk about, ask, you know, what do you care about, people always say that. But that wasn't the reason that they won. You know, I mean, I, I, it, I also, you know, those polls where they say, what's your number one issue? I don't think they include Donald Trump as one of the issues. They don't. Yeah. They don't call him an issue. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> I, if you added him to what's the number one issue, I suspect that would be one, two, or three, probably one uh, in all of those polls. But I don't know. I'm not a pollster. Uh, real quick, guys, because i got to get out and take a break here. Um, but let me get a thought from each of you on this very quickly. Uh, it, it occurred to me while watching uh, on, uh, what was it, Tuesday night, uh, and thinking back to the GOP clown car debates of 2016, that, you know, these candidates, all of them, are at least seven smart people, even the ones that I might not like as much as the others. And I, I don't know that they would all make good presidents or that they could be elected against Trump. Um, but it is tough to just disregard or dismiss any of them out of hand um, you know, based on their various skills and experience and knowledge. Um, have I lowered the bar too much, Heather? No. And I, I felt from the very beginning that, that e either any of them could beat Trump or none of them could. I mean, honestly, and I still maintain that. That's one reason why I don't panic one way or the other, whoever's in the lead. For me, uh, the, the top you know, choice. <laughs> That's my top issue is getting rid of Donald Trump. I certainly have my preferences among these uh, candidates, but whoever it is, I think, can either beat him or none of them could have beaten so him. So where are we? Are we is that any of them can beat him or none of them can beat him? I don't know, and okay. I will not know until it happens. David, <laughs> are Democrats uh, blessed with such a field or cursed by it at this point? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, if you're a Democrat, one of, the, one of the reasons you tune into these debates, particularly in the early going, um, is you just, you just want to listen to someone tell you like, things that you agree with and that you like to hear um, and that are not coming out of the president's mouth. You know, like, so you turn to that first debate and you're like, yes. Right. Like, yes, I like all of, all of these people. I would, I would crawl across <laughs> hot coals to vote for any of them. You know, um, and then, you know, the process drags on and people get invested in a particular candidate and then you decide, you know, you decide you don't like one of the candidates and then you find more reasons to dislike them. Um, and I've, I've really tried not to let that happen to me, this cycle, although it's impossible with Bloomberg. <laughs> um, but, I, yes. you know, Bl Bloomberg aside, I would be I would be happy to vote for any well, of the other six people on that stage. Well, we're going to go through as many of them as we can and get your thoughts. Uh, take, a, take a quick break here and come back and get your thoughts on each of them, because... Uh, for all we know, this could be the last uh, debate, last time we see a number of these candidates. So a quick break here. We'll come back with our special coverage here on the broadcast of Tuesday night's South Carolina debate with Salon's Heather Digby-Parton and The Week's David Ferris and, of course, the delightful Desi Doyen and myself. Right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial.
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. They are not with you on spending nearly $60 trillion. What I think we should do is make things more affordable, nonprofit public option, make sure we're paying for long-term care better, and Uh, do something for the people of America instead of a bunch of broken promises Uh, that sound good on bumper stickers. Mr. Steyer, Mr. Steyer. I think we're talking about math. I think we were talking about math, and it doesn't take two hours to do the math. Because let's talk about what it adds up to. Let's talk about math indeed. Okay, so here's the math. Thing. No, here's the math. Can I respond to the Doing nothing is what will happen. Senator Sanders, you're allowed a quick response, and then we would like to allow the other candidate. No matter what every study out there, conservative or progressive, says Medicare for all will save money. Ours will cost about $45 billion, not $60 trillion. No, I was talking Nothing could be finer than to be in Carolina in the morning. Welcome back. It's the broadcast special coverage of the South Carolina Democratic presidential debate. I hope we didn't trigger David Ferris too much there with that opening. Uh, Welcome back. Uh, Over the past two weeks or so, after winning the popular vote in all three early primary and caucus states, Bernie Sanders has opened up a pretty wide margin nationwide, at least for now, as we head into the South Carolina primary on Saturday and Super Tuesday in 14 other states uh, all at once, just three days later. So I want to run through with my guests here, David Ferris and Heather Digby-Parton, uh, sort of as quickly as we can, um, as many of his uh, of Sanders' challengers as we can get to with um, some of your comments from the from the uh, Tuesday night debate uh, in South Carolina and get your takes on each of these candidates and their potential paths towards staying alive. Uh, as I said, a number of them may be gone from the race entirely, depending on what happens uh, on Saturday and in particular on March 3rd, Super Tuesday next week. So let's start with Elizabeth Warren. Uh, this was a good moment, I thought, from her in uh, Charleston on Tuesday night. Bernie is winning right now because the Democratic Party is a progressive party and progressive ideas are popular ideas, even if there are a lot of people on this stage who don't want to say so. Bernie and I agree on a lot of things, but I think I would make a better president than Bernie. And the reason for that is that getting a progressive agenda enacted is going to be really hard. And it's going to take someone who digs into the details to make it happen. Bernie and I both wanted to help rein in Wall Street. In 2008, we both got our chance. But I dug in, I fought the big banks, I built the coalitions, and I won. Bernie and I both want to see universal health care. But Bernie's plan doesn't explain how to get there, doesn't show how we're going to get enough allies into it, and doesn't show enough about how we're going to pay for it. I dug in, I did the work, and then Bernie's team trashed me for it. We need a president 
who is going to dig in, do the hard work, and actually get it done. Progressives have got one shot, and we need to spend it with a leader who will get something done. Mayor, this Judge, is, we want to bring you in this David Ferris, um, Elizabeth Warren's poll numbers have been on the rise since her performance at last week's debate in Nevada. Is she right there about uh, both progressivism and her critique of Sanders? Is that fair there? I mean, I think it's a fair critique, right? Um, and I, I happen to, to share it, but I'm not sure, you know, how invested voters are in in the precise sort of details of, of the things that she's criticizing Sanders for. You know, like sort of later in the debate, she went after him for, for not supporting eliminating the filibuster. Uh, obviously, that's something I care about a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that the, that the broader primary electorate and the Democratic Party is super invested in that question. Um, I thought that some of her her strongest moments in the debate were again um, really sort of carefully dismantling Mike Bloomberg. Um, in, the, in that sense, she's done everyone a public service. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, just uh, really, I mean, the pointing out that he funded Pat Toomey in 2016 is just, just mind blowing. Yep. Um, because uh, Democrats really could use that Senate seat in Pennsylvania. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I know that in the beginning of the debate, she, she kind of had to draw some contrast with Bernie um, to convince everyone that she's sort of still in the race. But it felt to me that the contrasts were really gentle and, and, and where her heart was was going on the attack against Bloomberg. And in that, in that sense, I, I kind of feel like she helped. She still was helping Bernie and, and Biden. Um, and I don't think that's not an indictment of her strategy. I'm not sure that there's I'm not, I'm not sure that there's a way for her mm. to turn around the state polling at this point because she didn't really see a benefit in Nevada from that great debate that she had last week. Well, to be fair, um, she came in, she had a great, she did well in the debate, but it was after the majority of voters had already, uh, caucus goers had already cast their votes uh, during early voting before the uh, Nevada caucuses. Her polls went sure, up, but her yeah. votes, you know, it wasn't reflected in the bo- in the votes, I think, in no small part because of that. Yeah, sure. And I, I think that she, you know, she's going to need to have some surprises on, yeah. on Super Tuesday. She, she um, will. Heather, if uh, if there are some surprises for Warren uh, in a few states, does she have a chance of being the uh, sort of the less scary Bernie Sanders that both uh, moderate Democrats and progressives could uh, finally coalesce behind? Or, or must Bernie's uh, challenger be one of the conservative Democrats who are still in the race, uh, that it is hard to imagine, um, you know, a groundswell of much-needed progressive support for if they should win? Well, I, I don't know. I had kind of hoped it would be that, that it would end up being Warren versus Bernie. I think that would have been a really interesting uh, discussion. But as David pointed out, you know, Warren's pitch, and, and I'm totally convinced by it, by the way. I voted for her in California um, already in early voting. Uh, and I'm totally convinced that she would be the best president of the field. I mean, I, I believe that she has the intelligence. I think she's got the energy. And I think she does have the ability. When I mean, she mentioned just in passing that she built coalitions, she did. Mm-hmm. She has a certain capability, I think, that, that, that you know, is much more uh, compelling for the moment with her progressive cred on the one hand and then this kind of sort of this stick-to-itiveness that she has where she can really kind of push things. I think she might be somebody to just go, okay, Liz, we're going to, you know, we'll do it. You know, please, leave me alone. So, I, you know, I just have a feeling that, that her, you know, the, her saying, which is nevertheless she persisted, I think that that is um, a, a plus for her in perhaps being able to push through 
at least some pieces of this progressive agenda, which unless we get a 60-vote margin in the Senate uh, and, or eliminate the filibuster, all these other boring details, uh, I think it's going to be a very tough, tough road to hoe. Mm. But you know what? I kind of think that people don't really care. I, I'm with David on this. I, I kind of think that what we're talking about now, this is a big, broad-stroke election. And the reason that, that you know, the, the people who like Bernie, the plurality of the Democratic Party at the moment who, who like Bernie, is that he's just saying this stuff, you know. I mean, I don't think they care whether or not he has a plan to get it done. I think they just want somebody to say it. Mm. And, and he's saying it in the clearest, most you know, forceful way. And so I think Elizabeth sort of suffers from being somebody who's kind of, you know, I hate to say this, a little more serious. Let me uh, move on because uh, I want to try to get through as many of these folks as I can here. Uh, here's Minnesota's uh, favorite daughter, Amy Klobuchar, with a similar theme to uh, Warren's there, uh, though taking on both Sanders and Warren in these comments. If we spend the next four months okay. tearing our party apart, we're going to watch Donald Trump spend the next four years tearing our country apart. Look. We have a clear choice of who's going to lead this party. And I am the only one in the New Hampshire debate when asked if we had a problem with a socialist leading the ticket that raised my hand. And if you want to talk about getting things done, according to Vanderbilt University in Tennessee, last Congress, I was the most effective Democrat in the U.S. Senate on 15 metrics. Bernie and Elizabeth were in the bottom half. It matters if okay. you can actually get things done. Gail. It is not just who talks the best, who is actually gets things done. Well, with all due respect, it seems like what she is not getting done here, Amy Klobuchar, is uh, getting voters to coalesce around her candidacy. She would have to leapfrog, it seems to me, Biden, Buttigieg and Bloomberg in some fashion. Uh, yet that does not seem to be happening. David Ferris, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the reality for Amy Klobuchar is that every minute that she spends in the race from here on out, she's probably helping Bernie Sanders um, because she's fracturing the moderate vote. Um, and sure, you, I mean, you can say that for any of them, um, but I think, you know, the only person at this point that really has a, a particularly compelling case um, as, the, as the moderate to coalesce around is Joe Biden. Um, and so I just don't see what her path is. I mean, she, she, has to, she has to be able to reach some of these minority voters. Um, you know, I mean, she's trying, but it's, she's not good at it. <laughs> um, and that's not going to play well, I think, in a lot of these Super Tuesday states. I, think she's gonna, I don't think she's going to do well in South Carolina. Um, and she really needs to win something other than the Minnesota primary um, in, in order to make the case that she is somebody that, that can unite all the factions of the party. Um, I, I personally, I like her um, better than some of the other moderates, um, in spite of her reputation as a as a extremely bad boss. <laughs> um, but it, it just doesn't seem like it's going to happen for her. Um, and I think that her campaign is going to have to confront the, the the fact that you know she's behind four or five other candidates in most of these states. Um, and at a certain point, the money's going to dry up, and, and, and that's kind of going to be the end of it. Yeah, I would agree with you that, you know, I, I also really do like Amy Klobuchar personally. I think she's a great person, but uh, I think she made a great case that she should maybe stay in the Senate, where she's really clearly very effective at uh, making deals and getting legislation passed. And um, she is obviously at least buying over her Uncle Dick in the deer stand. Uh, Heather, <laughs> before I move on to Biden here, any thoughts on uh, on Senator Klobuchar? I'm with David on this. I, I think that she's, you know, we've seen the last of her in the debates and that probably it's time for her to 
to move along. She gets out if she doesn't do well in, uh, I, on Super Tuesday? I think so. I just I can't see any future for her uh, in this race. All right. The argument has been made for many months, uh, and in fact, many polls still show that people believe that Joe Biden is somehow the most uh, likely to be able to, to, to defeat Donald Trump. Uh, more so than any other candidates in most of the polls even now. He talks a lot about his long record. Um, he does not talk a lot about the future, I notice. He talks a lot about what he has done. Um, and here he is, for example, responding to how he would uh, how he would deal with a potential coronavirus pandemic. Members of the Trump administration saying we don't have enough medical masks if necessary. What would you do? What we did with Ebola, I was part of making sure that pandemic did not get to the United States, saved millions of lives. We increased the budget of the CDC. We, were, we increased the NIH budget. We should have our president today, and he's wiped all that out. We did it. We stopped it. What I would do immediately is restore the funding. He cut the funding for CDC. He tried to cut the funding for NIH. I would be on the phone with China and making it clear. We are going to need to be in your country. You have to be open. You have to be clear. We have to know what's going on. We have to be there with you. Uh, Heather Digby Parton, uh, after watching Biden now in 10 debates, uh, do you take comfort or have confidence that he would be the most effective going head to head with Donald Trump on the debate stage, et cetera, this November, as a lot of Americans still seem to believe? Well, I don't think he's ever been a good debater. I and agree. He's particularly, you know, he's, he's, he hasn't improved, let's put it that way, uh, over time. The, the debate in, in South Carolina was his best debate by far. He seemed, you know, much more comfortable there and he was and he, as you pointed out earlier he's kind of playing this role of you know I'm the normal person here you know everybody look I'm a gentleman I'm not breaking rules I'm not breaking norms and that's part of his appeal which is we're going to put you know this this guy we've known for years we'll make him president and and he'll you know bring back normal politics again well that's a pipe dream it's it's as much of a pipe dream as any of the radical crazy you know, whatever you may think of Bernie and Elizabeth's policies. I mean, it is, it, it, you know, just sort of happening. Uh, that he, Things are never going to go back to the way that they were, and we shouldn't want them to. D but he'll probably end up being, if he does win, and it's possible, he'll be a placeholder. David, yeah. would you be uh, comfortable with Biden as the party standard bearer, very quick? I mean, I can live with it. You know, um, I think that... The, the stars really aligned for Joe Biden last night for, for a couple of different reasons. Um, one is everybody was going after Bernie, <laughs> um, and so they didn't really touch him. Um, and he's still kind of floating up there in second place. He's leading in South Carolina. Um, you could see a scenario where, you know, he either fights Bernie to a draw on Super Tuesday, or maybe he comes out with a slight lead in delegates. Um, he was coherent for most of the night. I know the bar is super low. Um, <laughs> Brad, he said uh, he doesn't talk much about the future. That's because I'm not sure that he has much of one. Mm. Um, but he, I think he's going to live until the election, so Close. that's good. <laughs> um, but I will say, <laughs> I will say, I think that the, the coronavirus thing um, really plays into Biden's strengths. Okay, because yep. this is the first foreign policy issue that anyone cares about that has that has come up in these debates. 
um, you know, I don't think that I don't think that primary voters really care about China trade or the USMCA or, frankly, even Iran. But man, pandemics. Okay, people care about pandemics because mm. they don't want to die. Um, and yeah, and so I... here's a guy who's been in office, like who, who's dealt with something similar. I mean, mm-hmm. I think he's like sort of overstating the case for the Ebola thing in 2014. Um, but certainly, he seems to know. Uh, what he's talking about in terms of what the government response should be. And I think that that draws a really good contrast with some of the other candidates on that stage last night. It most definitely does, but my concern is that he's not going to inspire the youth vote to come out, and that's going to be actually crucial to beating Donald Trump. So that's my fear. The, can I, can I yeah, just no, point I, one I, I thing agree, out yeah. about that? <laughs> yeah, is go that, ahead. Is that the, the, uh, you know, so far we haven't seen the youth vote come out for Sanders or anybody else. Neither have we seen an upsurge in non-voters. So if Sanders wins the election and he wins it on the basis that he's going to get the youth vote out, we're all, and I'm talking about any of us who care about beating Donald Trump, which I think is all of us, uh, we're going to have to work really hard to get that youth vote out because they're not coming out on their own, at least not so far in the first in the first three. They have not, that vote has not materialized, unfortunately. I have to. Uh, I'm I'm running really short here, so here's what I'm going to do. Totally unfair. Going to skip Pete Buttigieg. Uh, skip his audio. <laughs> Uh, and I, I don't mean it as a slight. <laughs> I just don't have time. Uh, so very quickly, Heather, uh, is it just me? And I could be biased because, as I said, I really thought his attack after Nevada on uh, the Democratic frontrunner was just ill-considered. Uh, but but does uh, Buttigieg sound to you increasingly desperate as well, or is that just <laughs> me? Oh, you know, yeah, of course, because it's coming down to the wire and he is not winning. Um, you know, we'll see Buttigieg around for a long time to come. I don't think he's going to make it to the finish line. D- and David, exactly. I think uh, Buttigieg would make a fantastic Secretary of Transportation or a HUD secretary in the next Democratic administration. Um, uh, frankly, though, even as a, a veteran, I don't know if I would have confidence in him as VA secretary, to be frank, given his lack of experience. Um, but uh, any thoughts on Buttigieg? Yeah, he'd make a great uh, Secretary of Tone Policing, and uh, <laughs> you know I think he had a couple of good moments in the debate. You know, I liked his line about the filibuster when he was like, you know, how are you gonna have a revolution if you won't even change a rule? Um, but uh, you know, again, he talked about his Frederick Douglass plan. I mean, it's like just be silent about that. It was so embarrassing the way he tried to court black voters in South Carolina. Um, it's not working for him. He knows it. That that's been the dynamic for for quite a while now. Is that he's not he's not been able to capitalize out on the momentum out of Iowa and New Hampshire once the electorate diversified. All right. And, and I don't. You know, it doesn't seem like he did anything to change that last night. And uh, Michael Bloomberg, poor Tom Steyer. We're not going to get to him. I don't think. Maybe. Well, we'll see. But uh, <laughs> Bloomberg, I need to get to him. I don't mean to give him short shrift here. Well, maybe I do. Uh, nor is that meant as a pun though maybe it is, but billionaire Mike Bloomberg, uh, who's bought and paid for candidacy, actually offends me to the soul, not because of his positions, even though they're very Republican, uh, nor because he's very rich, but because he used that money to buy his way into the race. Here he is on a related matter on Tuesday night. Let's just go on the record. They talked about 40 Democrats, 21 of those were people that I spent $100 million to help elect. All of the new Democrats that came in put Nancy Pelosi in charge and gave the Congress the ability to control this president. I, bought, I, I got them. Um, what did he say there, Heather? <laughs> well, it sounds like he was about to say he bought them, and I think he probably thinks he did, but of course he didn't. Look, Bloomberg, and I said this earlier, you know, when, once people got a look at him, and I, I'm not talking about his looks, I'm just saying that once they got to see who he really is, 
it, you know, he's in a very unpleasant candidate. And, and it just goes to show you that money can't buy you love after all, even half a billion dollars. So, I, I mean, in a way, I think that we're going to have to look at this experiment that he and Steyer have been, have been running here mm-hmm. and ask ourselves about money in politics, what it really means, how it can be better spent, and various other things. But the idea that just anybody can jump in and buy a, an election, I never thought he could do it, and he hasn't. I, uh, I'm going to jump to Steyer here, and I won't have time to play his audio either. But like I say, it's kind of sad because I kind of like him, billionaire or otherwise. I'm just not sure he's long for this race. Uh, he was the only one, he has been the only one to bring up a, a, a call for reparations. He's been very good on climate change, and he has also been one of the few to try, at least, to take on Donald Trump, uh, specifically in these, deba- in these debates. But uh, David Ferris, does he need to be voted off the island anyway at this point? Oh, for sure. I mean, I was going to say, I don't even have a note about Tom Steyer. Like, it didn't even, like, he didn't even register with me during the debate. Like, he's, <laughs> he's fine. He's like a fine person. Uh, the term limits thing that he keeps hammering is just so oh. puzzling. Oh, yeah. It's a about. bad idea. Bad idea. It's a bad idea. He's not the first person to bring up reparations. Like, Elizabeth Warren has talked about reparations. Uh, Tom Easy Coates talked about how he met with her, mm-hmm. and he was like, she's the only one that I believe in the whole field that actually takes it seriously and might even think about um, doing something about it. Uh, so in that sense, he's just wrong. Um, and he's, you know, he's in Biden's way in South Carolina. Um, frankly, he's just in everyone's way. In the sense that he's up there, and he could be using his money to, to help elect Democrats to Congress. Well, that would be Senate. a good idea, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he does have a nice uh, scotch tape tie, so there is that. i got to take a break. We'll be back with our closing few minutes with David Ferris and Heather Digby-Parton here on our special coverage of the South Carolina Democratic debate on Tuesday night. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. When you get knocked down, get up, and everyone's entitled to be treated with dignity. No matter what, no matter who they are. You know, you're defined by your courage, you're redeemed by your loyalty. I am loyal, I do what I say. What's the biggest misconception about you, sir? I have more hair than I think I do. <laughs> well, um, Joe Biden is hoping he gets up for the South Carolina primary, or he may not be long for this race as well. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Our special coverage of the Tuesday night South Carolina debate continues with uh, Heather Digby-Parton and David Ferris in our closing few minutes here. I'm not going to ask for predictions per se, uh, but with Saturday, uh, South Carolina on Saturday, Super Tuesday, three days later, uh, let me start with you, Heather. Do you expect clarity or confusion as far as the nominating contest goes after the dust settles following uh, Super Tuesday? 
uh, well, I don't know what to expect, and I don't make predictions, but I would guess it's going to go the way we think it will. I think uh, you know Sanders will come out with the most delegates. The only question is how many more he has. Then I think Joe Biden, I think, is turning out to be surprisingly, uh, unsurprisingly, the uh, moderate, you know, consensus candidate. And I'll go right around the horn here with all three of you. Uh, never mind who will be left standing, uh, Heather. Who would you like to see uh, the race come down to if you could whittle it down at this point uh, to either, you know, two or three candidates? Hmm, well, that's interesting. I mean, obviously, Sanders, there's no point in ignoring him. He's going to be in it. Um, I would like to see Warren and uh, I guess Biden be the three that I, I think that would be an interesting, um, interesting mix up there. Warren, Biden, Sanders. Yeah, I would have to agree with Warren, Biden and Sanders as the ones that I think it should be narrowed down to just for everybody to be able to have a good choice of options. But I'm really concerned that uh, the establishment Democrats will have a difficult time uniting everybody after trashing each other and other candidates and other candidate supporters that I find to be a question. David Ferris, two or three candidates I mean, you'd like to see it whittled down to? In an ideal world, I guess it would be Warren, Sanders, and Klobuchar, but I guess, I guess we're going to go with, with Warren, Sanders, and, and Biden, which I think is the, sort of the most realistic top three. I mean, I think there's a real chance that by the time the March 15th debate rolls around that we're down to Biden and Sanders. Um, and I think California is going to be a really, really critical state on Super Tuesday um, that could determine whether Sanders has what is effectively an insurmountable lead, or whether we're going to have a, a kind of a month-long slog to, to, the, to the summer convention. You know, Remember, just, uh, it takes I, us a month to count our votes in California. That's so. right. That's, That's true. Right. It does, and I don't think it'll be a month-long slog. I think Milwaukee isn't until, what, July? That slog could go on for many months, even after Tuesday, depending on how uh, Tuesday goes. And, well, I don't know if any of these candidates want to get out at this point. Uh, they all seem like they're, well, we'll see. I guess uh, votes do have a way of changing things, don't they? Uh, hey, th uh, thank you, guys. Really appreciate your time as ever here and your uh, great knowledge on all of this. You can find, uh, let's see here, David Ferris. You can find him at theweek.com. You can find him also on the Twitters at David M. Ferris. And I hope you'll consider buying his book, It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. There is uh, a lot that I agree with in that book and some that I disagree with vehemently. David, really appreciate <laughs> you uh, being here as ever, my friend. Uh, Thanks. Heather Digby Parton, of course, find her on a regular basis at salon.com and every damn day of the week at digbysblog.net. And, of course, on the Twitters at Digby56. Thanks, Heather. My pleasure. Uh, we will be back with you once again tomorrow for another thrilling episode of the Bradcast. Until then, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That's made uh, possible by listeners like you who support our work at bradblog.com slash donate. And because it's Desi Doyen's birthday week, we're giving all the money <laughs> hey, to her. Happy birthday. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, you can also drop me an email if you like. I'm Bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.